Good morning and welcome to the second episode of Babes Talk Money. This week we have a special guest on our show. You want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Emily and I, like my other hosts, am an economics major, but I'm a second year, so a little bit uh, behind them in the coursework, but I'm equally as excited to talk about economics this week with everyone on the air. Yeah, and Emily was actually a student of ours in our exco, uh, so we're really excited to have her on. She's gone through this coursework before with us. Yeah. She definitely has, and she is also taking over the class um, next fall when Emma and I are off being real adults. Scary. Um, Anyway, so this week we're talking about behavioralist economics. Uh, We're really excited about this one. It's an interesting school, and part of the reason we brought Emily on today is that she's pretty knowledgeable on it. She's read some cool books about it, so get ready for a wild time. So we actually record this podcast on Sunday afternoons. So by the time you hear this, it will actually have been Julia's birthday on Monday. Uh, but how was everyone's weekend? My weekend was really great. I spent a lot of time with friends celebrating my birthday. Also got some work done. Not as much as I needed to. Go figure. But yeah, it's been really good. How was your weekend, Emma? Uh, well, my weekend was pretty good. I went to some concerts. Uh, I didn't do the homework that I needed to do. What about you, Emily? Yeah, I also am pretty behind on work. I biked to Walmart yesterday, which was a process because I had to borrow two bikes from various <laughs> people. And I think I went through at least seven bikes before I found two that were available and working that I could mount so it was an adventure. Oh my God, that sounds like an adventure. Uh, okay, so while we've been sitting here, Emily actually pulled up on her computer her final project for our Exco, which was about behavioral economics, which is our topic for the week. So Julie, do you want to introduce behavioral for us? Yeah, I can give it a go. Um, so basically, the idea of behavioral economics, very, very basically, is that, so last week we talked a little bit about homo economicus and how that's very flawed having this like perfectly rational being that's sort of in the image of a man. And so basically, we also said that most economists, or all economists, reject this notion, but then they still use models that are based around the idea of homo economicus, which is obviously very problematic. And so behavioral economics uses psychology to try and solve this problem and starts to think about what does it actually mean to be rational and how do humans actually behave? Are we actually rational? What's the deal? Yeah, exactly. And one really interesting thing about behavioral is that it's becoming really popular and almost, one might say, mainstream in economics. So while it is an alternative school of thought, definitely does not fall under the category of neoclassical, it is becoming sort of mainstream. Cool. Okay, Emily, you want to add something to that definition? Yeah, so behavioral economics really can be... um, rectified with the neoclassical school and the neoclassical model that is often used in economics if you cast the model in a light that actually reflects how humans behave so that it's more helpful. For example, a lot of models, especially at the elementary level, make assumptions such as all prices are the same or everyone knows all information or people will always want more. And 
these assumptions often are just not true in any actual circumstance. So therefore basing your predictions off of them is problematic. But on the other hand, with behavioral economics, you can make those assumptions more reflective of real life and in that way make better models and really be better economists. Yeah, totally. One thing you touched on in there that I want to go back to is this idea of information asymmetry. Uh, It's this idea that people don't always have the same information, and it's really, really important in economics, um, especially when you're modeling real-life policies off of it, to understand how people don't have all of the same information and how a stockbroker on Wall Street has different information about how to get a loan or what interest rates are at the time than someone who you know, just has a basic checking account. It's really important to think about those kinds of things. Yeah, another example of asymmetry that might uh, impact more daily lives is in the health insurance market when everyone needs health insurance, but they know what their body is and what healthcare costs they might need, and the insurer really has no idea. And in the past, this is manifested by health insurance providers uh, doing screenings for pre-existing conditions where you'd have to go to a licensed provider and they would determine whether or not you were um, you were eligible for insurance. So for example, if you had cancer, they could say, we'll insure you if you get hit by a truck, but we won't pay any of your cancer payments. Um, and of course, uh, since the Affordable Care Act, this is uh, not something that uh, people are allowed to do, but I suppose we will see how much longer we have of the Affordable Care Act in this. I think the new president has said he will release his plan sometime in March, so we'll have to see then. Yeah, kind of a scary time. Um, <laughs> but going back to something Emily said earlier about how applying psychology to economics um, in in the fashion of behavioral economics allows us to be better economists. And that's definitely something I agree with. Um, but there is an important critique of behavioralist economics that I just wanted to mention, um, which is that it's based on psychology. Um, but psychology has its own flaws. So if you think about where these models are coming from, they're based on experiments conducted mostly in Western countries, in the United States, in Europe. And so culture can affect psychology, and it's just important to note that things that ring true and are used for these models might not ring as true if you were to look at, say, India or China or somewhere that has a different cultural uh, sort of context for how, how people behave. Yeah, another important note to think about when you're looking at uh, behavioral economics in the context of psychology is that while we said earlier that um, an economic model is only as good as its assumptions, a psychological experiment or theory is only as good as the practices that were used when the study was done. So really looking at the methods of all of the studies and seeing if they were fair or if they were biased is another important thing to keep in mind throughout discussion. Yeah, Emily, that's a really good point. Um, And that sort of brings me back to something that we talked about in the last episode, something that we'll probably talk about in every episode, which is this idea of pluralism in general, that, you know, we love behavioralist. Two out of the three people sitting here have dedicated a decent amount of time to studying behavioral economics, uh, the third one uh, just a normal amount of time. Um, But we do really, really believe 
that it's so important to have lots of different ideas, lots of different schools of thought, because there are these kinds of flaws and these kinds of asymmetries within each of these schools. So like I mentioned, Julia and Emily have a lot of experience learning about behavioralists. Julia, do you want to talk to us a little bit about your experience? Yeah, totally. Um, So junior year, um, I took a seminar um, with an econ professor at Oberlin, um, and it was called Behavioral Economics and the Environment. And so my professor was very candid about the fact that he doesn't know much about behavioralists that he is a neoclassical guy but he's interested in it and he thought it could be very cool to apply it to environmental issues because he was the professor filling the environmental economics position Um, so basically in the seminar we spent the first half of the semester reading Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman who is sometimes thought of as the originator of behavioral economics Um, and basically he lies out all these what he refers to as heuristics um, so basically these different psychological phenomenon that are relevant to studying economics um, and it was a really it's a really interesting book um, again it has its issues because of like the stuff we were talking about before with what's wrong with psychology in general also In my personal view, I felt like Daniel Kahneman was a little bit arrogant, but he did have some cool things to say. Um, And then for the rest of the course, um, we had to write these long papers where we talked about some sort of economic or some sort of, yeah, economic issue that was also related to the environment. And we had to talk about how you could use behavioralist solutions to this problem. So yeah, I talked about energy efficiency and I talked about different concepts that we'll probably touch on later in the show. So yeah, Emily, tell us a little bit about your experience. So my experience with behavioral economics isn't really as formal as Julia's. It's more of from an interest level of trying to really supplement the economics education I get here at Oberlin with, with some more um, things about more elective ways, but it mainly comes from private reading. So a main book that I read that I would really recommend um, is a book called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. And uh, this is an interesting person. He right now teaches psychology and behavioral economics at Duke. And his book centers around the question of how people really make decisions, which is right in the vein of behavioral economics. And his inspiration for his research was that he um, was a victim of a pretty severe burn accident when he was younger. And um, in the process of his recovery, he had to get uh, a lot of treatments um, with bandages being removed and reapplied. And he was thinking about how the choice between having a lot of pain quickly versus Uh, less pain slowly and how that really doesn't uh, line up with what most people's notions of rationality would be and from that he uh, when obviously he recovered and everything and his work continues that was kind of the impetus for a lot of the research and he really discovered some uh, pretty interesting things and uh, another book that um, 
I am drawing fun from is one called Scarcity, and I don't remember the author, but that really looks at how people respond to having less, uh, less time, less money, and how you can see that, um, yeah, when people are have less, then that will affect how they make their decisions too. Really cool. So as you can see, there are like a lot of different ways to apply behavioralist economics. Uh, it has a lot more flexibility than neoclassical. It can sort of apply to very specific interests within the economy. Uh, so yeah, we love behavioralists. So one of the pieces that we read from in the Exco that this podcast is based off of is a book called Economics, The User's Guide, and it's written by Hajun Chang, uh, who's an economist who is really interested in pluralism. The whole book is about a wide range of disciplines in economics, uh, or schools as we like to refer to them as. So I'm just going to give you Chang's one-sentence summary of the behavioralist school. He says, we are not smart enough, so we need to deliberately constrain our own freedom of choice through rules. So this is really different than neoclassical, which sort of takes this idea that we are all smart enough to know what we should do, and so there should be no rules at all. It should be unrestricted. Um, I mean, neoclassical is a little bit more complicated than that, but generally, I would say that those are the big differences between behavioralist and neoclassical. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, and so... Also, Hajun Chang has written some really cool other books. He wrote this book called 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, which I really recommend. Um, it's very interesting, and they basically talk about how our system of capitalism in the United States is not actual pure capitalism. So Emma just gave us that quick definition. Um, so Emily, do you have some more to say about that? Yeah, so... Really, behavioral economics is just looking at trying to add some reality to this kind of esoteric science that we're all studying. So in the main textbook that uh, economic students study, written by Mankiw, who was one of the main financial advisors under former President George W. Bush, there are 10 principles of economics that say things like, this is how economics works. And one of those principles is rational people act at the margin. So if you really think about that, this is one of the norms of uh, neoclassical that uh, the behavioralist school really takes away from. Because if someone uh, is a rational person and they act at the margin, then the way that they make decisions, for example, if they're at the grocery store, they will say, oh, I'm going to buy an apple. I'm going to buy another 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 apple. I am going to buy another apple. I am not going to buy another apple because the price is too high and we have reached the exact margin of what my willingness to pay is. And that is absolutely ridiculous. People don't act like that. They pick up as many apples as they think that they want. If they're hungry, maybe they'll buy more. Like there's really more, just more things to look, look at than um, what just the cut and dry economic mathematical rationality formula may indicate.
So before I mention something about these like heuristics, these different psychological ideas that have been applied to economics um, to create behavioral economics, essentially. Um, so one of those is called time inconsistent preferences. Um, and this is something that I'm familiar with because the big term paper that I wrote for the course I took was all about how time inconsistent preferences uh, interact with people making the decision on whether or not to do energy efficiency upgrades. Um, so basically, the way neoclassical economists would talk about things, they would say, your preferences are the same all the time. Neoclassical does allow for your preferences to change, but the idea is that when you're like thinking about something, you would say like, oh, if I like value this at this amount right now, then I will also value it at this amount in a little while. But in reality, people don't do that. So let me just give a quick example of that. What this is talking about is this idea that, I don't know if you've ever heard any of these psychological studies about people not being able to wait for getting $5, but it's sort of like those studies that are like, uh, I would rather have $5 now than $10 later. Even though in one case you're getting $5 and in the other you're getting $10, you should be able to pick clearly that the second case is better, people might be more inclined to pick $5 right now. Yeah, so this is really a problem that uh, we all can identify with. If you've ever procrastinated on something that's saying, oh, I value this right now more than in the future, or if for example, my health economics class, we talked about how a lot of the times people will make unhealthy decisions now, even though in the long run they value their health. So time inconsistency is why people have trouble keeping diets. It's why people have smoke cigarettes. Um, it really does apply to us like right at the level that we know in ourselves. So one of the big things about behavioral economics is this idea of bounded rationality, bounded willpower, and bounded self-interest. We've talked about this a lot, especially in the context of homo economicus. Like we said, the idea behind homo economicus is that he always makes the most rational decision for himself. And behavioralist recognizes these ideas of bounded rationality, et cetera, et cetera, as being the idea that humans are not homo economicus, they don't always make the most rational decision because they do have bounded rationality, meaning there are things that get in the way of them making the most rational, if you could see me, I'm using air quotes, rational decision. Um, the same goes for bounded self-interest and bounded willpower. We can't always control ourselves in the way we want to. We might want to make the smartest decision and not have the willpower to do so. Or bounded self-interest, meaning we may not understand necessarily what's best for our self-interest. And that connects back to information asymmetry, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, totally. Um, and so this also gets back into this discussion that we've mentioned a little bit today, but more so last week, about, like, pluralism and how we personally are advocates for making economics grow and not just replacing neoclassical with a different school. And behavioralist is kind of exciting in the sense that it is one of the schools that has been more influential and actually come into neoclassical. And so 
um, bounded rationality and these concepts that Emma just brought up are concepts that neoclassical has started to actually take into consideration. So um, basically what we had said last week and what I mentioned earlier again in this show was that all economists know that homo economicus is flawed, um, but here it's not like, oh, we're just going to say it's flawed, but we'll use these models anyway. It's, here's an alternative, and economists really like this, so it's, a, it's an exciting time because it also gives us hope that some of the other schools we'll be talking about in future weeks could be incorporated into the mainstream and be really productive. Yeah, a way that this really could be applied is uh, if you think about the microeconomic concept of indifference curves. And this is a graphical representation of uh, different uh, bundles of consumption that people are indifferent between. So saying, oh, if I could have three apples and eight strawberries, I would be just as happy if I had four apples and seven strawberries, for example. Um, and a lot of the time in models, they'll put these curves to be strictly linear or strictly uh, convex, which means that they're very uh, curving. But a lot of the time, like they wouldn't be like that. They would be circular, they would be wavy, they would be something else, uh, depending on how people are actually indifferent between things, which is not you know, following the exactly linear Cobb-Douglas or whatever other formulation that uh, is more standard in the practice. Yeah, so there was a lot of economic jargon in there, but essentially what Emily is saying is that the graphs don't always look straight like they should. Economists want things to line up. They want them to look pretty. They want them to look consistent. And human preferences don't look like that. we've covered the money part now let's move on to the babes part this is something that hopefully we'll be doing every week it's really important to julia and i and emily this week to talk about what it's like to be a woman in economics hopefully try and connect back whatever we're talking about that week to our experience in economics as women um and just sort of draw attention to what it's like to be a woman in economics yeah totally so emma and i already talked a little bit last week about our experience um but we really want to hear a little bit about Emily's experience. Uh, being a woman in economics is an interesting place to be because economics is considered more of a social science humanities than it is STEM. Even though we do a lot of math, and this is such a male-dominated field, like in my macroeconomics class last semester, it was about a 30-person class, and I think maybe there were 10 women. And this is pretty standard, and it gets exacerbated the further up in levels that you go. And there have actually been studies about women in economics that I have uh, looked at and gotten angry about. I think it's always been late at night. Maybe I'll send an email to someone I know from Econ entitled Feelings with some links to angry studies about uh, women in economics. But um, generally, there's less women in most of the science fields or like they are less likely to get promotions or um, be in the higher level but normally when you control this for productivity meaning how many papers someone publishes then this evens out 
which makes sense because, for example, women are more likely to take time off to have children or to start a career and then have children and not go back to work. But in economics, even when you control for productivity, women are still statistically significant to, to a statistically significant degree less likely to be higher up or to get promotions. So um, yeah, that makes me really mad. Yeah, something that I always think about uh, in terms of women in economics is I had a professor freshman year, she was actually a politics professor, um, who talked to me about what studies she had done on women in economics and women in STEM fields. Interestingly enough, it is important for us to note that economics is not considered part of STEM. The E in STEM actually stands for engineering. But uh, I like to think that economics is very math heavy, especially depending on what you concentrate on. So although it's not technically STEM, it certainly is in the science and math field. Um, so something that she talked about is that women tend to struggle a lot more in science and math classes because women are taught to be more competitive with each other and are less likely to feel comfortable working in groups. Um, this is something that I think about a lot. I know now as a senior econ major that I never could have gotten through this major or passed some of the classes that I ended up passing, thankfully, without a study group because this is the kind of material that you need to work through with other people. But I did find that when I first came into college and I started taking these courses, men were finding it a lot easier to link up and work together, that there was less of a natural competitiveness between them, and that women are sort of taught to tear each other down in some ways, um, and in a way that can be really, really hurtful in the classroom when you need to be relying on your peers. Um, yeah, that's really true. And um, I think for us, that's why this Exco has been so important. I think for um, Emma and I recently getting to know each other even better and realizing like it's really refreshing to have a woman that I can talk to and be friends with um, and also talk about academics with. And now that we get to bring Emily into that, it's very fun. But it's also, yeah, it is really frustrating. And it's also frustrating as a field because it's not just the women thing. That's what we're talking about because that's our experience but it's also a very white field. It's very cis. The truth is it's it's difficult. It's difficult to be in classes like that. It's difficult to feel like less is expected of you. I know lots of women who have spoken to their advisors and have been discouraged from doing math concentrations or taking some of the upper level economics classes. It can be really difficult. Yeah, so it's like as we're sitting here and each of us are sharing these things, we're all nodding along like we all feel this um, really strongly and so it's just it's something that we all care a lot about and care about changing because economics is really important and it is really interesting and there's no reason that women and minorities and people other than cis men cis white men uh, shouldn't be involved with it yeah it's an important thing and i mean the reason that i love economics is because i see it as a mathematical sociology and getting more people involved in this could only be good to get more perspectives on how this can work and how it can predict the world yeah totally and that sentiment is definitely i think at the base of what we have been trying what julia and i have really been doing together for the last four years uh for our last for our time at oberlin and sort of what we're getting at with this podcast and with our exco is this idea that we're not asking that economics can perfectly understand bounded human rationality tomorrow 
What we're asking is that we don't sit in a class and pretend that what we're learning is completely accurate to humans. That we don't pretend that what we're learning is accurately reflecting human preferences or is accurately reflecting human diversity because it isn't. And the fact that there isn't a disclaimer, the fact that there isn't a warning is I think what really gets under our skin. I'm seeing a lot of nods in here. So with that being said, I think we're gonna wrap up for this week. Emily, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time this afternoon. Yeah, thank you, Emily. Um, And thank you all for listening. This is Babes 